Welcome to the podcast of the comic books of the movies of the Planet of the Apes with Brian and Ken. We will be reviewing every Planet of the Apes comic book ever published. All apes, all the time. Every ending makes you want to pound sand on the beach. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Ready for it? Episode number 200. 200, 200, 200. Recorded April 18th, 2015. So in honor of our 200th episode, and we not only bringing back our April Fool's Planet of the Apes opening, but we brought back Brian as well. It's nice to be associated. Welcome, Brian. Welcome. Good to be here. Excellent. As a big Planet of the Apes fan, again... Great having you in the mix. Yeah, it's fun. This was I was so excited when they first announced the crossover between Star Trek and Planet of the Apes. I was like anticipating it for a long time, and here we are. You're the guy that told me about it, and you were quite excited about it. So that was cool, uh, you letting us know. There you go. And wasn't it one of the covers of the first issue that uh, you had posted the, uh, the graphic? Yeah, you mean one of the eight covers, I think? You ain't kidding. <laughs> Actually, 10, I think. Well, whatever. They got a lot. They did. A lot of exclusive stuff. You know, and, and I used to collect all sorts of Star Trek stuff and just finally reached a point in my life where I said, you know what, I have a family and a house and I can't keep storing this stuff and buying this stuff. And I kind of got it down to Star Trek comic books. That's what I now buy and collect. And so I do collect all of the different covers. But that decision was made before the sort of IDW cover explosion thing. Um, so I started trying to find these covers, all of them, and I got most of them, but there was one which was exclusive to a website called Think Geek, yeah. and it was announced, and there was a picture of it, and it, um, I, I signed up for Think Geek, and it was supposed to come out, and all of a sudden they just sent an email that said, nope, not doing it, changed our minds, and oh, I've seen really? a few of them show up on eBay for like you know $150, which I'm not doing that. But I was like, so these, this, box, this shipment of, of comic books must exist somewhere, and there must have been a breakdown in the business plan or model or agreement, and uh, what is the real story? And no one seems to know. Hmm. So which cover was it? I mean, just high level, the, what was on it? The Think Geek well, cover was, it was a, a black cover with a Starfleet insignia, and inside the Starfleet insignia was a, a gorilla's face yeah. in red. Yeah, probably General Marius. And mm-hmm. you can see all ten covers, or actually eight. It's well, eight. you can see all of them in the uh, in issue in, number one. They cover. show all of them. Okay, yeah, yeah I see it. Thinking. So okay. obviously, the nerdblock.com special cover uh, mm. that got distributed. You've got that one. I've got that one. Cool. I wonder what the, Think Geeks does some pretty cool stuff, and they obviously have some resources. Uh, right, they do all kinds of special, really cool things for folks like us. Um, right, I mean that's surprised. the whole idea. I just don't know why it would have been. I know it's produced because I know I've seen them out there. I mean, I've seen them They're for sale. Just oversold, right? I don't think they ever. I don't think Think Geek ever got it or distributed it. Uh, so that's what I'm saying. Is it never? It never came. I kept asking them, and they kept saying, like, "Saying, oh, we're working on it. We're working on it." And then all of a sudden, there was an announcement. Decided not to do this. So, there's a story there somewhere. Uh, 
Did you get the sketch art, the sketch cover, and did you have anybody sketch anything? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> so I do like going to the comic book conventions and seeing you know artists doing that, but man, I, I just can't imagine going up to somebody and asking them to do it and how much they're going to charge you to doodle something on those covers for you and how and how well it's going to look. Right. Right. I just got it. Put it in a bag. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so for future gener- generations to pull it out and like, huh, that blank cover. <laughs> it's, it is a weird thing. So anyways, so 200 episodes, uh, this, this marks a landmark for us. Really is quite an achievement, boys. Well, it's something I'm proud of. Uh, it's just amazing that we have been able to do it this long, considering our busy schedules. The real question I have is how far, if you look at every comic book ever published, how far along are you? Are you 50% there? Or are you, you know, where are you? Well, they keep putting out new ones, so that's a <laughs> problem. Darn them. <laughs> I know. Gosh. Um, as of uh, a while back, uh, I kind of added them all up, and we were about 65% because you know we've we've completely finished off dc and Mal, uh, marvel and well we haven't completely finished dc because we haven't done volume one right but uh but you know really the only things left is that one dc the little bit of Wildstorm that we haven't done yet and then idw and then we got uh gold key which we're about 40 percent done so yeah, you, you you got a ways to go <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> And then with this, this you know, the ongoing going on, and then it's going to have the Green Lantern crossover, and, and they just keep pumping out new ones. So it's, it's tough to keep up, man. Yeah, I don't know about that Green Lantern crossover. That's going to be interesting to see how well that works. It's just an interesting choice. Why that particular character in the whole DC universe? Maybe there's a reason. Well, that one makes well, more sense than... He operates in space a lot. But other than yeah. that, I don't, see, I don't see why they do that. I don't see why they bricked Green Lantern. Other than that, I don't know. I think I think it could work. I, I like the idea that uh, you know a Klingon gets a hold of a, a yellow power ring. I, mean, I think that it has potential. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't read the Legion of Superhero crossover with um, with with Star Trek, but I mean this one seems at least more believable than that one. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not really commenting on whether it's it, it's the right choice or not. It just I'm wondering what it is because it seems from one who doesn't know Green Lantern very well, it seems random, but it could be a great choice. Well, the Green Lanterns are guardians of of the universe, so right. Star Trek's out in the universe. I, I I could see it as being a logical choice. Hmm. We'll but see. I, yeah, I assume a lot of it takes place not necessarily on Earth, but like in space kind of things, you know, space locales. Right, but I guess we'll find out. Meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, we need to talk about a different crossover here. Oh That's yes, nice. and one that at first surprised me. It both excited me and perplexed me at the same time when I first heard about it. You might say it's the crossover nobody expected, but it's working really well. I'm only yeah. I, I only read the first three issues, but so far it's really good. I'm going to say that I like this crossover uh-huh. and that I predicted uh, or I. I expected it. Not expected it, but wanted it. Because, 
you know, Mego came out with those toys. You had Planet of the Apes toys, and you had Star Trek toys, and you had Marvel and DC character toys, and they were all the exact same size. You could interchange their clothes or whatever, and you could have <laughs> whatever kind of adventure you wanted to, mixing up all the genres uh, or franchises. And you know, I so you did your own crossover, is what exactly you're me. in your head. Us. You did it. This was something that could happen. This happened every day in my room, you know. This, this, this. <laughs> <laughs> the only logical that somebody would eventually that. come out with a comment. Oh, yeah, and, and, and that was only last year. <laughs> well, I was, being, I was being a little facetious because there's a whole series of the covers that actually say the crossover that nobody expected. Oh, so see. clearly you have bucked the trend, uh, proven <laughs> that statement false. Um, I'm impressed. Well, Anyways. Yeah, I you, you bring up it. an interesting point, though, it's, but it has to do with um, the cover, one of the covers for issue four. So maybe I'll save that point for the next episode. Um, it's about the mixing of the, the, the toys. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Unless you want me to tell you now. Don't want to spoil it. Mm, let's save it. You got it. Well, I'm kind of curious. That's what a teaser is all about. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> You'll have to tune right, in next well, which week. Which one is it? The, the chair one? Yes. Okay. All right. We'll talk about it later, I guess. Indeed. Okay. So uh, another cool thing about these issues is that Dana Gould does a little essay at the end of each of them. And I'm digging on those essays. They're, they're pretty good. They're pretty funny, I think. And um, they're bringing up points that didn't occur to me and definitely information that I was unaware of. Uh, as far as the authors and, and things like that. Yeah, they're doing a good job. He's doing a good job. I think, um, is Dana, that's a, I assume that's a man. Yeah, Dana um, Gould. He's a comedian. I okay. Um, I, I thought he's done a good job sort of uh, talking about how both the original series and the first movie, which is what is actually crossing over here, were being filmed at the same time. Yeah. Being able to kind of play off on that riff a little bit. And then he does a nice compare contrast about, you know, about the same time period. There were, and but the dynamics of each one—one one being very popular and or being very um, positive, well, popular. positive, where the other one is hopelessly negative. And I really didn't realize, but man, Planet of the Apes movies—definite downers. <laughs> I I disagree. Um, I, I think you have to put the first movie in a class by itself. I mean, I love the whole thing. Um, oh, I love them the, all. I'm just saying I, they're I really negative. <laughs> I do too. But the very first one is yes, negative. You're right. But it is such a, a commentary on. It, it's a cautionary tale. You know, it's an oh, allegory. Yeah. yeah. And it's so good um, that it, it really does hold up over time. I don't know that the sequels hold up because they don't have that same sort of drive underneath them. They're sort of just continuing the story. Um, and I don't mean to, to diss them, but I, I just think the very first film is, um, is just such a classic and in a class by itself. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And incredibly I, negative. I, I agree with you, but the, the one thing that I, I dislike about the first one, and, and we'll see it in these issues, is the Taylor character is such a jerk. Well, he's a misanthrope, for sure, but... Um, yeah, but, yeah, but it made him unlikable. Jerk. When I watched the movie, I don't like his character, and his character is not really in the same vein as the uh, the novel. And his name's right. not Taylor; it's Pierre right. or something like that. But um, you know that that character in the novel was was relatable. Where right. Taylor just seems very bitter and and 
and unapproachable and and kind of you know like like Dana uh, Gould says the opposite of Kirk and and I didn't really right. think about it being the opposite of Kirk until until right. he mentioned it but well yeah there are a lot there are multiple points that Gould comes up with in here that I I completely agree like wow he's right about a lot of stuff and I really never thought about it right mm-hmm. but but yeah that was the one thing I didn't like about the movie in fact I mean the just he he's just well, you, I, you need your protagonist to be somebody you like, and, and I never did like him. I, I could always I, I agree with you on the book. In fact, I just recently read the book. I had never read it. I read it last month, um, and I was amazed at sort of the the changes that had been made for the film. And um, there were good changes for a film, but I loved the book. I loved mm-hmm. it for what it was. But I always thought that the Taylor character, you know, he starts by basically being anti. Um, humanity and he's running away from humanity. He thinks that, I think the line is there has to be something better than man up there. There just has to. And what he finds when he gets there is that it, it wasn't so bad after all. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, it could be a lot worse. Um, I, that was always sort of the way I, I saw that character is just this sort of like having this awakening that um, things on, you know, and, and in the end he ends up missing. And, and grieving the loss of the very planet that he was escaping. That makes sense. And, and, and quite frankly, I think it, I took it a little differently. At the end of the movie, when he sees the Statue of Liberty and he realizes he's home and that they finally did it, humanity blew itself up. Um, I think he's, yeah. as, he's as disenchanted as ever with, with mankind, but... I mean, at least I think maybe he's trying to start over again with uh, with the humanity that is there. So I think that might be going on at the end of the uh, the first movie. Uh, definitely, he seems to be pro- trying to protect mankind in these issues we're going to be reading. So right. well, that he kind is... of become, he becomes the defender of mankind when he's saying, right. you know, they were here before you and they were better than you, and so yeah. here he is, this this unlikely defender of the human race you know i think that was the juxtaposition that they were going for yeah Yeah. anyway so um should we start or is there more to be said as as intro i'm ready that's that was a good intro (laughs) a long one (laughs) probably one of our longest but this is really i'm excited these are really cool stories yeah agreed yep all right Okay, I get to do issue number one. Its published date is December 2014. Um, Star Trek and Planet of the Apes, The Primate Directive. Writers, David and Scott Tipton. Art, Rachel Stott. Colors by Charlie Kirchhoff. Letterer, Tom B. Long. Editor, Sarah Gatos. And, and the Boom Studios uh, editor is Daphna Plevin. Okay. Okay, so as we mentioned, eight different covers. Wow. Cover A shows General Marius with a smirk of satisfaction on his face and a torn Starfleet gold tunic in his left hand. Rachel Stott did the art and Charlie Kirchhoff the colors. Cover B is another classic Juan Ortiz cover. Love his work. It shows the fallen Statue of Liberty and Kirk materializing next to the Grand Lady. The subscription covers a knockdown dragout fight between members of Kirk's crew and Taylor fighting against General Marius's ape soldiers 
and the Klingon. Art by George Perez and colors by uh, Lan O'Grady. The sketch cover has the comic title and publisher's names at the top, and the rest is left uh, blank white for, uh, you know, ready for artists to fill in. The retailer incentive cover A is black and white version of the subscription cover's Big Brawl. Art by Tone Rodriguez and colors by Charlie Kirchhoff. The retailer incentive cover B shows a huge ape in the Enterprise captain's chair with Kirk's tunic on and ripping under the strain. The ThinkGeek.com retail exclusive cover shows General Morris's head with the Starfleet swoosh, uh, within the Starfleet badge swoosh. Art by John Midgley. The NerdBlock.com retail exclusive cover shows Kirk and Spock in defensive positions and phasers out. Unbeknownst to them, four dirty apes are dropping down on them from the tree limbs above. Art by Rachel Stott and colors by Charlie Kirchhoff. The scene opens on a multi-unit dwelling with a horse corral attached. A natural setting surrounds the building, and it's a windy day. Inside the building is a conversation going on between a humanoid with Caucasian hands who is handing what appears to be a Russian AK-47 assault rifle to a second person with gloved, human-looking hands. The first humanoid says, Watch out for the kick! since this weapon is much more powerful than the stone-throwing wooden rifles the second humanoid is used to using. The second individual turns out to be a talking ape. It's General Marius. He is impressed with the heft of the weapon, but is still mistrustful of his benefactor. The general lets go, a short burst against a wall, and he is all smiles. The shadowy individual says he only wants to help general, the general take over his world. Once the general crushes this world under his heel, perhaps the general will want to repay the favor, eventually. The shadowy figure says, it will be glorious. Elsewhere, on a Klingon world, Sulu and Uhura are disguised as Klingons and making their way through a facility. Uhura uses her knowledge of the Klingon language and her don't-mess-with-me attitude to get them into a sensitive area. They find and download the data they need and must fight their way out into the open where the Enterprise can beam them up. They break orbit quickly and head back to Federation space. Spock debriefs them on the stolen data, saying they found plans for a device that appears to facilitate interdimensional travel. The Klingons are apparently expanding their empire in a whole new direction. Spock says the data also includes coordinates to the planet the Klingons are using to test their new tech. They can be there in five hours at present speed. Kirk gives the word. When they arrive at the coordinates, they see three large devices, like the ones in the plans, hanging in space with a glowing ball of energy at the nexus between them all. This is the dimension-hopping device, and it's active. Two Klingon battlecruisers, who appear to be guarding the device, notice the Enterprise's incursion and move to intercept. They fire at each other, and finally the Enterprise is able to severely damage one of the Klingon cruisers. The other cruiser actually enters the portal that appears to be a swirling creamsicle portal. But where does it lead? 
After much debate and orders from Admiral Comac to investigate the portal at the captain's discretion, they enter the portal. They come out the other side into what they expect to be an unfamiliar dimension. But what they find is Earth! Spock confirms it is Earth, but not their Earth. Based on planetary erosion patterns, he estimates it's the year 3978. No evidence of advanced technology or space travel, despite Earth itself being 1,700 years older than the Earth they know. There is evidence of nuclear war in its past, but rather than an advanced spacefaring race rising out of the ashes to take part in the formation of the Federation, this Earth appears to have fared far worse. Spock says there is evidence of Klingon transporter activity. He can locate precise beam-down coordinates. They enter standard orbit. Kirk, Spock, and two security men beam down in strange-looking civilian clothes that still have Starfleet colors in the form of bar-shaped fasteners on their right shoulders. Kirk uses a pair of advanced binoculars to see in the nearby building. He sees a Klingon of their acquaintance named Kor, speaking to apes in clothing? They do appear to be speaking to Kor, a conversation. Kirk gives Spock the binoculars to take a look. Easier than explaining. To be continued. That's so, pretty far in the future. That's damn far in the future. The first thing that I want to ask about it, it, that surprised me when I read it, and I think upon reflection and hearing the whole thing, now, having read the whole thing, I get it. But what surprised me was that they had to set this in an alternate universe. Because when you think about the fact that, you know, from when these shows both premiered, you could have had the same Earth that went through these different, you know, stages. Um, as the as the stories progress, that becomes less possible because we know that the the apes, you know, took over in the '90s, and you had the eugenics war, and the third the third nuclear third world war for Star Trek happens. And so, when did our nuclear war happen for Planet of the Apes? I get why they did it. But it surprised me. I, I didn't. It didn't occur to me that they would have to come up with, oh, it's an alternate universe in order to make this work. Did that surprise either of you? No. <clears throat> I mean, they had to do. I think they had to do something. I mean, I think one of the first things, at least Donovan, Donovan and I started talking about, is, I mean, there are two mutually exclusive futures of mankind and Earth. Right. Uh, so how could they cohabitate? So I. That was my first question. How could they? make them both happen at the same time. And this is this is a solution. It's it's a good yeah. solution. I think so. I think it works. Yeah, I would have I would have been unhappy if they tried to shoe it, shoehorn it in and say that it was the same the same future or further into the future than Star Trek. Yeah, that would have created more problems, I suppose, than uh solutions. Right, because, uh, I mean, kind of off topic, but uh, Dark Horse Comics did a crossover with Terminator, Aliens, and Predator, and they tried to do that by saying that the alien future is the same future post-Skynet uh, from the Terminator movies, and to me that just didn't work, that, you know, you you couldn't be in the situation where you could have the alien movies in a, in a universe that's, you know, after the machines already took over the took over Earth. So uh, I kind of like the alternate universe idea instead of making it one cohesive timeline. Hmm. So they actually tried to say that after Skynet was defeated, mankind was able to get its act together again, rebuild, 
and start venturing out into space. That's what that one comic book says, huh. yes. Mm-hmm. Yep, that sounds a little far-fetched. Right, because mm. they were all dead. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing I found kind of weird about this is 1,700 years into Star Trek's future. I mean, if it really was that much further than, than the 20th century, then would there really be anything left of the Statue of Liberty? I mean, would it? I mean, that's a long period of time. Um, and why did they need to set it that far in the future? Uh, did the apes have to... Was this in the continuity of the original movie where the apes had to kind of evolve into uh, speech and that kind of stuff? Is that why it's so far in the future? Because once they start to to get to um, the third Planet of the Apes movie, they make it... They start painting a picture where the takeover was a lot faster. Right. And, and because Cornelius and uh, Zira, mm-hmm. because they came back to the 20th century Earth and they had the baby, that kick-started the whole uh, talking apes thing. Right, but well, that, that a, depends. That, 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 that even within Planet of the Apes is, can, can be considered an alternate timeline. So did did oh 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 is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I and I can show you even if you open up um, one of the DVD displays, it's beautifully, beautifully displayed. It's a Blu-ray, the Blu-ray displays this gorgeously packaged um, unit, and it has two timelines right on it, and it shows you where they diverge, and you can follow <sighs> either one. Um, so you know, it, it's the the classic causality loop paradox of if. You know, Cornelius and Zira hadn't come back. Would the whole thing have started? And the the impression I get is that yes, it happened on its own, but then they came back and were a part of it, which altered things a bit. Well, accelerated things. Instead yeah. of evolution, eventually leading to talking apes, it was their return introducing the baby into 20th century Earth. Right. Is that right? That's clever. I hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> now, now. Rick- Help me remember, does the, the last Planet of the Apes movie, does it end with a nuclear war? No, it has already happened. So it already happened. It, it happens right afterwards. In fact, it, it's the... It, with it, they, they, they go back to the city, which has been devastated by nuclear blast, and they run into characters from Conquest, who we assume later um, their descendants mutate into the mutants that we know in Beneath. That's uh, that's okay. set. Hmm. So we don't ever actually see the war. So the the, no. the, the fourth movie ends. War. It happens in between the fourth and the fifth movie. Okay. Okay. And the fifth one is the one that's like narrated by the lawgiver. He's like telling some yes. children or something. Well, and this is where the whole timeline is is you know the the two timeline theory kind of comes in into sharp focus because at the end of. A battle, which is, you know, again, immediately after, not immediately, like, you know, within 10, 20 years after conquest, um, they should have this, the opening and closing bookmarkers with the loggers. And I think that's like 600 years hence. And it ends with humans and apes, you know, in school together, listening to the lawgiver, and they are, you know, living together in peace. And he's preaching about living in peace. 
So the question becomes, is this the same timeline that ends up with Taylor's Planet of the Apes, you know, in the future, 1400 years later, or is this a new timeline? And they, they purposefully tease you with not really knowing because the, the Caesar statue is crying and you don't know what that means. And they've got this little girl, uh, I don't remember if it's the ape that leans over to the human or the human to the ape and pulls on her, you know, pigtails and... So there's just this question of have they created this new future where apes and humans live in harmony or is this just a stage that leads us back to what we know? All right. Huh. Mm. Well, it sounds like a Hollywood happy ending to me. But. Yeah, I always thought that was. But Battle was never one of my favorites. Yeah. In fact, I think that the most recent um, film in the new series, um, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, is really a remake of Battle and a good right. one. Yeah, it definitely is, and it's good. Yeah. yeah, it's good. These these new reboot movies are quite high quality. Good writing. Yeah, yeah, and and they do such a nice job playing with an homage to the original films, but not being a slave to them. You know, I mean, Star Trek handled that by creating an alternate timeline, which now they can keep all the old stuff and it's all involatile and it's all there. And Spock comes over to kind of put the the blessing on that or the or, or to make it um sanctioned um but <laughs> but they can do whatever they want with this new oh, timeline yeah. you they know, can include not... what they want or, or discard what they don't want they, they in... can they can skip harry mud completely right right well, um, harry well, they a woman now. they've already mentioned mud in the new series just saying well in the new comic series no he showed though the, the name mud showed up in uh star oh, trek good points yeah the shuttle so was that the it's... shuttle they used yes Yes, right. that they confiscated during the mud. Okay, incident. then. Cyrano Jones, then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I mentioned oh. Harry Mudd just because Donovan hates Harry Mudd. Ah. But now she's a Bajoran female, so I don't hate her as it much. Was, wasn't that his daughter or something? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, his Bajoran daughter or something like that. <laughs> I don't remember. Anyways, that was a different story. Yes. So in this new Apes you know, series... They're not really even worrying about that. They're not. They're just. They're just doing their own thing. But they right. do have some very clever and subtle ways of, you know, paying homage to the first series. Which right. I thought was good. Right in the first movie, I think uh, I loved that they mentioned Taylor's ship disappearing. The Icarus, yeah, deep space mission. They never without say without actually saying anything about it. Just it was in the news. That's what I mean. Yeah, it was just sort of there and. Um, I don't think the Icarus is ever named in the original theories, but everybody knows, everybody that's into Planet of the Apes knows it's the Icarus. And uh, that's what they say, yeah. It took off and, and got lost in space. Which so, is another. Don't go there. Which is another <laughs> <property>. <laughs> So, in regards to timelines, though, um, do, do you think Spock has the right time? Because it, it does seem kind of convenient that he comes up with the thirty-nine seventy-eight, like yeah. the actual year uh, date. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's precise. He has Spock. Yeah, that, yeah. I, I noticed that too. I thought the way that he said he came to it seemed it, like you could give a range, but no, he gives the date. Right, which is I think that's the same date that's on the chronometer on Taylor's ship when he crash lands. Right. Oh I'm my sure. God! Really? Oh, that's yeah. cool. I don't. I don't remember the number. I, I think that that does sound right to me, and certainly if there there's. People that wrote this uh, have a great love for both franchises. You can tell that seems like a detail they would check. Cool, right? And I, I, but I wish they left it out because 
because in the chronometer on uh, the TV show Planet of the Apes, which I like to think is in the same continuity as the movies, mm-hmm. uh, they supposedly crash land in 3085, which is 900 years earlier than, than the movie is supposed to take place. Right. And I always kind of chalk it up to, um, you know, either it is truly based 900 years in the, pa- in the past, but they seem to reference things about that happens in the movie, so... It needs to come afterwards, and I always kind of chalked it up to the chronometers aren't exact, right? It's not like the DeLorean time machine, which you knew exactly what day it was. <laughs> and so it was just, you know, you could always chalk it up to it. It was the future, not necessarily exactly 3978. Right. I mean, what, what are your guys' thoughts, or did you ever try to rationalize it all? Yeah, are you talking about the within the Planet of the Apes story? Yeah, right. Well, the TV series, too. Is that TV series and the movies yeah. and, and this now comic. No, never, never in a million years. <laughs> no, but all good points. I never thought about that. Yes, I did think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Are you um, making fun of me? No, no, I'm, 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 I'm making fun of me. I, I'm saying that. Yeah, that is that is a question that I have pondered, and I think that uh, the answer. I mean, the answer is, of course, West Coast, East Coast. That's one thing that always comes up really clearly is that the TV show is set on the West Coast. And the um, movies are set on the East Coast, and never the twain shall meet. Um, even though they have a guy named Zayas in both that looks exactly the same. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know why they didn't go further into the future. It would have made a whole lot more sense. Um, and, and there's a lot of little things in the TV show that don't work. Like the very first episode, the first thing you see is a dog. Dogs, yep. <laughs> and the dogs are supposed to be all dead. So. And the humans can talk, so... Yeah, yeah, and the humans could, exactly. So you have to kind of write that up with the the different sides of the continent thing. Right, <laughs> but but the fact that Zayas makes reference to, uh, he, I think at one point the TV Zayas he does make reference that he knows that someone uh, these came. astronauts have not are not the first visitors they've had from the past. Yeah, yeah, that that doesn't. There, there's not a lot of ways to uh, around that except to say that. <sighs> The people that wrote that script didn't have the same love of detail that the people that wrote this <laughs> <No>. comic. <laughs> Chalk that up to it being a TV series, and they did what they damn well pl- pleased in a lot of ways. Because they didn't yeah. think anybody paid that, like, that close attention. I think you're right. But yeah. I'll be honest with you. I love the TV show, and I think I actually oh. like it better than, than the, most of the movie sequels. I, I thought that it had a really good story, and it was an enjoyable, you know what, 20 episodes. I don't even know if it made it that long. No, I don't think it was. That it was one season, and um, they didn't all actually even get aired. I don't think. Um, well, I, I don't know. I, I love the TV series too, but I, it, I, I felt after a certain degree, it had a certain rhythm to it that got very predictable. Which is the two main characters have to run away. It was like the fugitive, you know, um, from somebody else this week. Um, again, I, I'm not dissing it, but I, I don't hold it to the same esteem as the films. Maybe maybe the same esteem as Battle. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up uh, when the first run of that was out. I was watching them every week. I loved them, uh, but it was it was a TV show. It was fundamentally, in a lot of ways, just a different kind of critter than the movies. And I just loved them. I mean, I mean the uh, the astronauts are actually able to fight at least put up a fight with the gorillas, which might have been impractical and unbelievable. But as a kid, I loved at least they could do that much. Right. And it was just more of an adventure show. Whereas the movies, I think, well, definitely the first movie, had a lot of real meat to it. Drama. Um, 
a wonderful allegory. I mean, there's right. a lot they, of meat to it. Where I thought the, the TV series was a little lighter. Entertainment. I think it had to be. It had to be. Yeah. It was on 8 o'clock Friday night. I mean, it had to be. It had <laughs> Can't to have be. people peeling their faces off. Right. Or, or being dissected or, or having their brains, you know, cut right. into and all that. They didn't do a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Because right. I think they knew they had a lot of kids watching. I know I just remember I got into a big fight with my parents because they made me go to church youth group on Friday nights and I wanted to stay home and watch Planet of the Apes. <laughs> <laughs> and that was before uh, VCRs that you could record things. That's I right. Assume. Yeah, so that was a big deal. You, you couldn't control what you watched. You had to be there when they showed it. Yeah. That's right. Primitive. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, real quick, back to the date thing. Um, just all the other times Spock has gone back in time or somewhere else in time, he, he's never given the exact date before, just just throwing that out there. He's always said it's the late 20th century or whatever. Uh, yeah. This is this is like the only time I remember giving an exact date. Well, maybe, maybe Star Trek IV. <laughs> he was given exact dates, well... In general, he gives amazingly exact, precise figures. information. Right. In, exactly. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. He usually does it to the decimal point. So I chalk it up to that kind of thing. Hmm. And, and, and the idea of what he's saying, based on erosion, I mean, we know from our Earth Sciences days that, sure, mountains are going to wear down at a certain rate. And if you knew enough, I guess I could see how you could calculate that kind of thing. But... I agree, not to the year, but it is Spock. Right. I thought I thought that was a little weak, the whole how he came up with the exact date, and it was the exact date that, you know, but Taylor was there. And, but anyway, it, 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 I guess the thing about both of these books, and I think any crossover that you have that, that is uh, difficult, is you've got, assuming you've got fans of both series. Now, there's people like myself that know both franchises pretty well, but then you've got a lot of Planet of the Apes fans that really don't know Star Trek and certainly a lot of Star Trek fans that don't know Planet of the Apes. So you have to do exposition for everybody. You have to kind of explain the other franchise. You know, you have to explain the Organians and you have to explain um, all these different elements. Um, Zira has to go through a big thing about the strata of the um, society of the apes and things that, that seem like we all know this. But you have to do it for a crossover because you're dealing with um, two different foreign audiences. Sorry, yeah. that's my thing. Uh, good point. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Although I do think that both franchises are so awesomely popular. I think there's a lot of people that know both. But, right, there's always some people that don't know both. So Yeah, I, I just felt that the, the series was exposition heavy, but I understood why. I, I didn't think it was burdensome or a bad decision but you, you i kept thinking like yeah we know this we know this but i could see that somebody might not because they only were were in on one side yeah right and, and i could see younger you know people younger than me you know that didn't watch the original series of star trek and didn't watch the original planet of the apes and only know it from you know maybe next generation on including you know the the planet of the apes you know Tim Burton movie and the and the other remakes that would need this type of exposition. Yeah, even though they could they could think that they were fans of both franchises, but not go back as deep as you know yeah. we do. Yeah, that's a very good point about new audience, younger people picking up this comic. 
Because certainly, if they're going to watch something from Star Trek, probably ain't going to be Taz. It's like yeah. old-fashioned. Well, I mean, it'll be they... the animated series, right? Uh, <laughs> it's going to be the new <laughs> movies. <laughs> if it's well, going to be anything, but... I just realized that, I mean, it's, it's a simple thought, but this crossover is kind of interesting because both of these franchises, which were begun at the same time, um, have had television shows, movies, and animated series. Not in the same order. <laughs> Good point. Hmm. Huh. And their animated series was actually made by the same company, Filmation. Ah, that's right. That's right. With the um, same level of quality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Put your hand in front of your face when you say that, because um, <laughs> then we don't have to animate your mouth moving. Exactly. Um, the um, one of the things I had about this particular issue um, is, other than the little teaser at the beginning with the hands, I don't think I would call those hands Caucasian, by the way. But but um, I would. I would Take say they look, look Afri- they look African American to me. If I were going to just look at them, mm, wouldn't I? Wouldn't you say? But I guess it look, looks very Caucasian to me. African American? Yeah. You think so? Well, we're African. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, they look like they're darker, as the Klingons usually are. But anyway, I know. But I'm looking at the coloring of what I'm looking at, and they look like white hands. That's what was kind of throwing me a little bit because the they tend to have darker skin. The Klingons. Huh, weird. Yeah, whatever. Be a perceptual thing. But anyway, other than that little teaser thing and one little image at the end, that was really the only apes. Um, part of this first issue. I know they're going somewhere. I know they're setting it up. But it was the same feeling I had at the end of the first Spock episode on Next Generation when the whole episode was looking for Spock and then he shows up in the last five seconds and you're like, well, that wasn't much of a Spock episode. And you know you know it's coming. But but I remember at the end of this thinking, well, this was very Star Trek heavy. And And the whole series in general feels like Star Trek goes to Planet of the Apes more than the other way around. The ads in it are all IDW. It feels like an IDW property. Yeah, Boom is on there. Um, but it does feel like uh, more of Star Trek's perspective on on apes as opposed to apes' perspective on Star Trek. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, despite the opening, which is 100% apes. But right. But, yes. Well, not 100%. There's no, you got the Klingons in there. No, but even but you the don't know it's is... a Klingon. Yeah. And and do you think, and again, this might be a question for once we've finished the whole series, but do you think that the Klingon element was necessary to it being a good story? You know, did you, I mean, they used that because that's how they found the portal, okay? And the Klingons were doing their usual thing of arming, you know, one side over another and all that. Right. But was that really germane to what they were trying to get across? So I don't know. I'm, jury's out on that for me. Yeah. I I think it was good having... The Planet of the Apes, quintessential villain, the apes, and mm-hmm. then the Star Trek quintessential villain, the Klingons. I, did you have to have the Klingons? Maybe not. They could have had something else being the, the big uh, problem to have to overcome, but uh, I'm okay with it. But Yeah, I, I didn't, it didn't take me out of it. I just was just questioning sort of dramatically what was really their role, um, and it works. Well, you've got to have something to... Uh, to unsettle the water. Something has to be a, a problem that has to be overcome. Right. And they chose the Klingons arming the apes. Right. The gorillas. Which, which you know, they, they do allude to it, but, I mean, this is in exactly the same story of the Organians. You know, Organians. I mean, isn't, isn't the same scene of them being in the, 
a darkened room and giving them uh, guns and stuff. Isn't that from that episode? No, I don't know. Uh, there's, I think it's a, called a private little war. That's yeah, oh, that's, is that it? Okay, yeah, and that's the Vietnam up? allegory, right? Okay, so that's where they're arming the uh, what the hill people versus the valley yeah, people. The, I, I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, something like that. It's the people of the valley. <laughs> so the, the really blonde people versus the dark-haired people. You know. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, but anyways, it, it's Mugatu. It's the exact same thing, right? The 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 scenes are similar, except yeah, it is. I, I definitely, tapes. I definitely got images of Private Little War when I was reading this. Right, and that was core in that one too, wasn't it? Hmm. Or am I misremembering? I thought core was in the Organian episode. Well, he was definitely in the Organian one, but he popped up multiple times. Yeah, I could be off on it. The main yeah. thing is, it's a Klingon. Right. Yeah, I don't think any Klingon ever returned within the first. Uh, original series. Some of them came back later. Uh, well, Core was the first Klingon. Right. In, and that was in, uh, again, what's the Organian episode called? Um, uh, Taste of Armageddon? Armageddon? Uh, I don't think that's it, but I don't yeah, remember what it one. is. Ooh, taxing our knowledge. Da, 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 da. Ah, I don't remember. It'll come hmm. to us, I'm sure. But I, I thought Core, well... He he definitely was in more than once, but I can't. I don't recall whether it was within the same season. I don't know. I think I think he showed up in the in the Deep Space Nine. Oh, episode. he definitely. Oh, yeah. In in the animated series. Yeah. No, that was Kang. I think Core's in there too. Well, maybe Core can show up too, but. Um, but yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe Core doesn't show up. I always thought he did. I thought Core was kind of the the go to Klingon guy that kept showing up, but I might be wrong. Right. Errand of Mercy. Errand of Mercy is the Organian episode. Oh, okay. That that sounds right. Anyway. But anyways. So, just to change the subject, isn't isn't Kirk's hair color a bit too blonde? I know this is an important point, but... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's almost like like crisp pine blonde. I mean... Yeah, I mean, Kirk was always Kirk had lighter hair. I mean, blonde hair, but it was kind of like a dirty blonde, wasn't it? Yeah, and it this also... looks really, really blonde and very full and rich and full. His was kind of thin. <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying? Obviously, he uses the right hair products. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was no, the twenty just... third century. <laughs> okay, I just thought I had to get that out there. <laughs> um. So on a different topic as well, um, when Ahura and Sulu are going through the Klingon base and, and things like that, I didn't really care for any of those scenes. And Ahura should not be able, be that fluent in Klingon because, as we've seen in Star Trek V, she has to read out of the Klingon English dictionary. Uh, good point. Good That's point. a good point. But are they, again, channeling the 2009 movie versions because Ahura is fluent in Klingon. She, she also kind of looks, the character as drawn kind of looks like a cross between Michelle Nichols and uh, Zoe, I've got her name, Zoe. Right. Zoe Saldana, right? Yeah, I yeah. can never say that. Um, but yeah, she, she looks... She's uh, too she skinny. Kinda, yeah. She, you know, Ahura, she was not fat, but, well, except for in the later films, but she was not skinny. She was a full-figured woman. Mm-hmm. 
in the original series. Whereas Sulu looks very much like George Takei. And by the way, I think he looks really good as a Klingon. Yep. Um, it, that worked. Um, yep. I liked those scenes, actually. I, I mean, I didn't think they were necessarily you know, necessary to the story, but it never is. And I thought it was good. <laughs> well, I, I thought it was interesting showing the Federation doing spy stuff because that's always what the Klingons and Romulans are doing to us. Right. So that doesn't happen that often. Right. Um, so I thought it was different, interesting, but and they're domestic. definitely inside of the neutral zone, right? They they they've well gone past that, right? And that's never mentioned, really. In this, uh, uh, well, there aren't they on clean? Isn't this? Aren't they on the home planet here? Well, I don't think they said where they were. I, I don't sure. think I don't think they're on 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 Kronos, but they could be. But I don't think says, they said. Well, it says yeah, right. It just says elsewhere, right. and. But the the very first shot in there looks like Kronos to me. Sure, it does look like Kronos. And when I was doing the synopsis, I said, "Meanwhile on Kronos." But then I was just reading through and going, "It looks like that," but you don't know for sure. I mean, it could be a colony world. I don't know. Right. It could be a military world installation. I don't know. So I didn't. Good fine point. Uh, so Ken, I know that. Uh... Brian hasn't heard this episode because we haven't posted it yet, but um, didn't we do a Wildstorm comic not too long ago where Spock was going to alternate universes, or they had a machine that could uh, go to alternate universes um, Supposedly, and get mirror duplicates? Supposedly. Didn't this story seem a lot like that with the uh, the portals and things like that? Or at least yep. yeah, in the, the- theory. The look of the machine was different in the two the two comic stories, but yes, the idea is the same. But of course, we know at the end. Well, let's not get too too much into that story. <laughs> I mean, the main point is yes, it's very similar. Uh, right. Having a machine that could have you go to different uh, dimensions, or in in the case of the the other story, bring people back from the other dimensions. Right. Right. Just seems just odd that we we did those so close together. Yep. Mm. I agree. I just wanted to mention the Dana Gould uh, essay. Mm-hmm. It was titled uh, "The Motorcycle Cop and the French Dude," <laughs> and and it's like cool title. What the heck is he talking about? And then it turns out that Gene Roddenberry was a motorcycle cop at one point, so that's the reference there. And then the French dude, of course, is is. And I'm going to exact period. Thank you. I was going to slaughter the name, but. Yes, the, the Pierre part I got, the boule, I wasn't quite sure of the pronunciation. So I thought that was, I thought that was uh, a really good essay. Uh, I didn't realize that uh, uh, Pierre Boulle wrote Bridge Over the River Kwai. Um, that was news to me, too. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't know that. Uh, the fact they were both in World War II, or, yeah, both in World War II, was very interesting. Um, and then I love the joke about the Railroad of Death. Uh, where he says that's a terrible name for a railroad, <laughs> which, uh, of course, I mean the reference they they named it that because of all the people that died in making it, but then he twisted it into a joke about that this would be a railroad that people would actually make a conscious decision to ride. I thought that joke was great. <laughs> uh, anyway, there was a lot of really good jokes in there, and it was informative. I I thought uh, Dana Gould did a good job. Yeah, I like the I like the whole series of essays. Yeah, and you guys know. I mean, are you familiar with Dana Gould? 
No. So, okay, well, it says a little bit about what he's done at the bottom of the essays, but he's been a stand-up comedian for decades. Um, and he's a really, he's a science fiction geek, as you, as you read in the essays. But also, he's the guy that did that uh, stand-up little stunt where he put on a Dr. Dr. Zayas outfit. Oh, okay. And he had the suit of um, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. Hmm. And he did a monologue that was a combination of reading uh, Mark Twain's story about how he came to take the name Mark Twain uh, as a pen name, but mixed in as if Dr. Zayas is doing it. And it is so funny. Wow. And it was like, I can see why he is doing the essays for this. <laughs> huh. He's obviously a big uh, Planet of the Apes fan. And as we find out as you read the essays, he's a big uh, Star Trek fan too. So. Fun. I, I'm glad to know that. I had no idea. Yeah, go on YouTube and then do a, a search on, you know, Planet of the Apes, uh, Dana Gould, uh, you know, Mark Twain. Mix, it, mix some of that that up and it comes up. It's worth a yeah. It's worth you a you watch. had me do that a, a year or so ago. Yeah. I did not realize that, that was the same guy. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway, that's all I'd say about that. Hmm. All right, issue two. We're off. Okay, Planet of the Apes, Star Trek, the Primate Directive. Issue number two has three covers. The first is the regular cover, which shows Taylor. Not sure if he's pointing the gun at Kirk or just holding him hostage in front of the Statue of Liberty. Um, And Kirk is in the uh, you blew it up pose down on the beach, hunched over. The subscription cover is um, a very militarized looking Klingon, uh, core core in front looking full military regalia with um, the apes behind him. And the last one uh, is the retailer incentive cover, and that's an homage to the gold key days, and it's uh, really well done. It looks very much like you're looking at a gold key cover, but it's got uh, Kirk on one side, a photograph, and then uh, a picture of uh, Taylor being muzzled by an ape on the other side. Okay, the, the credits are exactly the same as uh, issue number one. Kirk and Spock, leading the away team, contemplate their situation, reiterating their surprise at finding talking primates. Spock identifies them as gorillas, and they speculate about an alternate Earth timeline. They attempt to run, but are spotted and fired upon by the gorillas. Kirk returns fire and stuns a gorilla, but one of the Starfleet officers is also wounded in the exchange. As the party regroups, they encounter some of the planet's human population— and quickly surmise their mental capacity, inability to speak, and relate it to a distant nuclear war. Meanwhile, Kor confirms that the gorillas, to the gorillas that these humans are from his universe. Back on the ship, Spock gives a brief expose on the Klingons and their policy of military expansion that has been thwarted by the forced Organian peace treaty. As such, the Klingons apparently decided to use the portal to expand into this universe without hindrance. A new boarding party with Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Chekhov, and a woman named Weaver beam down to, quote, someplace more familiar, which turns out to be on the beach directly in front of the Statue of Liberty. It's an emotional moment for everyone. 
They discover horse prints in the sand and follow them to find Taylor and Nova, apparently before Taylor disappears into a fiery illusion. After mistaking them for apes and shooting at them, Taylor is delighted to find fellow talking humans. Taylor is hot to use their ship and crew to take over the planet and to put humanity back on the right track. But Kirk explains the prime directive. Taylor convinces them to look for his ape friends, Cornelius and Zira, who can explain more. They are back at the archaeological dig site about a day's ride to the south. Kirk instead has Scotty beam them all to the site. Kirk orders the Enterprise to send a wide blast, stunning them all, as seen in the episode Return of the Archons. They uh, wake um, Cornelius and Zira and leave. They regroup, and Zira explains the strict social strata of the ape society. The previous conversation continues with Taylor wanting Kirk to conquer the apes with the Enterprise and its crew, and Kirk explaining the Prime Directive in more detail. Taylor appears to accept that Kirk's hands are tied. However, as they make their way for Ape City, Taylor grabs Chekhov, renders him unconscious, steals his communicator, and runs off into the woods. To be continued. What a jerk. He <laughs> continues to be a jerk, Taylor. Yeah. I couldn't really figure out why Chekhov is unconscious. He doesn't really hit him. He just kind of grabs him and then he's Chokes on the ground. He, it's, a, it's a sleeper hold. Oh, okay. Cuts off the air until he goes unconscious. Oh. He must yeah, be I a trained that, cop. Yeah. guess that makes sense. So I like that Cornelius and, uh, what's her name? Zira. Zira are in this one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, do, they don't, yeah. I mean, they're, they're not overly used, but yeah, it's good to see them. Yeah, I thought, I thought they did a good job with that. I mean, it, again, the whole choice to set, you know, this, this series right at that, right after the pinnacle moment in the first one. It's almost like a sequel to the first movie snuck in before the actual Beneath sequel. You know? Which, from yeah. what I recall of Beneath of the Planet of the Apes, is a good thing, right? Because, I mean, <laughs> Taylor doesn't show up until, like, the last... Well, no. What they, they're clever. What they do is, they, is Taylor is in the very beginning. It picks right up where, you know, it's, they actually show the end of the first film, and he finds the Statue of Liberty, and then they continue up the beach. Um, and that's what I meant when I said, at, right up the beach, there's this big illusion that's cast by the the mutants and Taylor disappears only to return at the end of the movie. So he's in the beginning and the end. So, so this had to happen at a very, there's a very small (laughs) window, small window where they, they could have grabbed Taylor, uh, and, and zero on the beach. I'm sorry, (laughs) Taylor and Nova on the beach. Right. But you know, it works. I'll go with it. (laughs) Yeah, Nova doesn't have a lot of speaking lines in this issue. <laughs> no. Isn't that a shame? Nova. Yeah, but is this the issue? No, it's the next issue where, yeah, where, where McCoy and Nova kind of yeah, what is that? have we'll a little thing going. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah, next issue, I guess. Yeah. Because um, I definitely picked up on that, and I thought, that's weird. What a choice. <laughs> okay, so... I think that Kirk's extreme interpretation of the Prime Directive and how it has to apply to this society, I think, is uh, is too too strong. 
So I I think they're purposely making it such a strong interpretation of the Prime Directive to tick Taylor off and engineer the whole thing where Taylor feels he's forced to try to do something in the ship. Uh, I, I don't think Kirk has to go that extreme in his uh, application of the Prime Directive here. What do you think he could do? I mean... Uh, I think he could do. I think he could do something, uh, which he ends up. They end up working on trying to do it, which is to try to first get rid of the Klingons. But then, um, I think there could have been something they could do. Where I mean, it's an entire planet, right? I mean, assuming that there's some habitable bits of Europe. I mean, couldn't they? <laughs> couldn't they take? Couldn't they take the humans from? you know, from here in North America, and put them over in Europe, separate them? I mean, couldn't they do something to at least put the humans that are on the planet into some kind of better situation than being slaves in, in, some, in some ways to the uh But how would, that not, how would that not be interference in the development of this particular Earth? It would be well, better for the humans. Well... And and so you're saying they shouldn't deprive, um, they shouldn't deprive the apes of a slave race or of people that are eating crops. I mean, they're almost viewed as pestilence by the apes. Right. Well, they are. Right. Yeah, so wouldn't you actually be benefiting the apes to get them out of there? Well, you only have one sentient human on the whole planet. And that's Taylor. I mean, everybody else. Okay. So, really so is my point an is animal. My point. Oh, just because you can't talk doesn't mean you're an animal. No, I mean, he, says they, he says they don't have a, a mental capacity beyond, ch- you know, yeah, children. Yeah, a child. Well, okay. But Which that, is what they say about monkeys and chimpanzees and stuff. Okay, but is it okay to, uh, to subjugate them or kill them or capture them or no? Although we do it. <laughs> you know, so I'm just saying... There are some possibilities of of improving the situation, the lot of life for the humans here, uh, that Kirk appears to be totally dismissing. Well, what, what what do you make of Taylor's argument that this is not an alien culture? This is their culture, so that they should be able to do whatever they want. Do you, do you follow that? No, logic? I don't. No. Well, okay. I think that Taylor is at one extreme point, and Kirk is at a different extreme point. And that's what sets up the conflict, and conflict is interesting. Uh, so uh, to some degree, I see both sides. But I think because of the fact that they're totally different dimensions, of course it's not the same thing as, as Kirk and the Federation, Federation we all know and love. However, they are humans. Um, hmm. I, think th- I think there's some more that the Federation folks should be wanting to do than just leaving everything status quo. Right. I mean, for me, the reason why it didn't ring all that true was because it was Kirk making the argument about the prime directive when he certainly does <laughs> plays fast and loose with it so so often. Yep. I, I yep. actually agreed with the argument, but I didn't necessarily buy that it would be Kirk's interpretation. Yeah. Right. Uh, I agreed with the argument, too. I thought that uh, if you were going to hold true to the prime directive, then then his interpretation of it is how you would have to see it in the situation. Yes, it sucks for the humans, but, I mean, it is the way the the natural progression of that society has gone. And, you know, doing what Taylor wants, which is to go and no. kill all the apes, you can't well, do no. that. 
no, you can't do that. But you, like I said from the beginning of my, my point, um, there's something in the middle that could be done here. And they're taking two diametrically separate positions, which, again, is great for conflict. But uh, I think it's artificial. Mm. Right. I was sitting here trying to think of what they could even do for Taylor. And, you know, I was thinking, well, maybe you could send him back in time. But then even that would um, disrupt the time timeline because he would know what would potentially happen in their future. Well, bring him back to the Federation. I mean... I mean, bring right. him, bring him back home. I mean, he's an intelligent. He's he's an astronaut, but I don't know that he would want to go because I think he feels an obligation to uh, the human race from his planet. Even though he's an artificial element in that world, right? Anyway, I thought I thought they well, and I also I thought he, they did a good job dramatically because I knew as soon as um, Taylor acquiesced that that wasn't the end of it, that he was going to take a different route. Um, you know what I mean? As soon as he said, oh, yeah, I guess you're right, okay. Oh, yeah. You knew, you knew something else was coming. Sure. Yep. Um, and I thought they did a good job with the art. And we haven't really talked about the art much, but I thought they did a really good job at sort of the subtle, uh, communicating a whole lot of things subtly. For example, when Taylor is waking up Zira and Cornelius, there's this real sort of sense of affection um, that is communicated in, through Taylor from the way he's holding Zira's head, from the look on his face um, as he's helping them up. I, I thought the art art in these books was was pretty astounding. I, I don't necessarily think that Taylor looks a lot like Charlton Heston. Do you, do you think that they did a good job capturing Charlton Heston's likeness? Or is that a licensing uh, issue? I see enough of him there that I didn't... Yeah, it didn't take me out of different. it. Yeah, th- there's some panels where he doesn't... He looks very much like Charlton Heston. There's, but most of the panels, not as much. Right. right. But the same thing can be said about Kirk. He doesn't always look like Shatner. Right. But I agree with you when he's caressing Zira's head and, and helping her up with um, by pulling her arm up. You know, by holding her by her arm, her hand. Yeah. It's it's. I mean, that is the only monkey he's got to kiss from. So. Right. <laughs> well, right. So I think. They had, and I meant ape, not monkey. I don't want to offend any of our uh, primate Simians. listeners. Chimpanzees. Right. Anyway, uh, I, I think Taylor and Zira. They there was a relationship demonstrated in the movie, um, and I think that was carried through in these scenes that you're talking about in, in right. the comic. Right, and that's what I appreciate is that sort yeah. of uh, attention to detail. Right. Yep. And Cornelius looks spot on. That looks like. Uh, what's his name? Ronnie Powell. Roddy. Roddy McDowell. Roddy. Roddy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, artwork was really good. Quite good. As always. Almost always. I mean, IDW is almost always very good uh, artwork. Very seldom that uh, they don't deliver on that. Right. So I got a question about their um, clothing choice. So if they didn't know what humans dressed like in this timeline. Um, why are they wearing the outfits they are at the beginning of this issue and the end of last issue? I think they dealt with that. They said we got to get different outfits to fit in. I don't know why they didn't do it the second time they beamed down. Right. You know, that's just not logical. But where did these outfits come from? I've never seen them before. And they have little patches that denote their rank. Their rank or and, their group, anyway. Yeah, right. The red, green. I mean, the red, gold. 
Right, yeah. yeah if you're going to go incognito, why have those fasteners and those colors? Right. And by right. the way, they don't have them in all the panels. I mean, I'm scanning through some of issue number two, you know, the early ones, and I don't see the fasteners anymore. Or I don't see them in all the... Yeah, they're in some of them. They're in some, and other ones, they don't bother putting them in. Huh, yeah, you're right. Anyway, it, you know, either, either they're civilian clothes, <laughs> or you're indicating Starfleet, uh, you know, organization. Not, not a mixture of right. both. Yeah, and either way, even if they're, they're civilian clothes, they don't look like the humans on the planet. They don't, right, yeah. They're not wearing the little rag. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> the loincloth. That gets a little tar- They even deal with that later in one of the issues. Um, uh, it, get, it gets a little cumbersome after a while. Well, luckily, it is more than just a loincloth. So. <laughs> what do you mean? It's more than just... Oh, you mean the, their outfits? Uh, yes, because there's oh, okay. a scene when ta- when Taylor's, you know, doing some action thing where it's obvious he's got more than just a loincloth on. So, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> 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 yes, he's got underoos under there. Yeah, but exactly. All right, look at the very last panel or the very last page of this comic book. Okay. Okay. And then, you know, there's uh, two panels at the top, two at the bottom, and then the strips in the middle. And look at the far right of the one in the middle. I'm sorry, but if I just saw that and just said, sorry, son, but you have something I need. <laughs> just, just look at it. <laughs> oh Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Maybe it's me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I didn't take it that way. No, I, I didn't <laughs> but now I do. <laughs> I do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can we just talk about Marius real quick? Sure. So Marius is not the gorilla captain from Star- Planet of the Apes, is he? Mm, no, I don't think he's, so. He's new to this story. I think he's a, a character in the Boom series. Ah, okay, okay. that makes sense. I think he's from the Planet of the Apes, but I, I, you know, I wouldn't, you know, bet the farm on that. But, um, but maybe the car. So, I, I think that's the case. So this is Boom tying in some of their characters into this narrative. I think so. Okay. Again, I'm not 100, percent but I think that's what's going on. All right, because I was really hoping that um, it would have been, uh, and I forgot his name. Dang it! One of the gorilla characters from the movies, Urko. I was I was really hoping that it would end up being uh, Urkel. Urkel? Why, why would Urkel be on here? That Urkel. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> the gorilla named Urko. Oh, oh Urkel. By, oh, that's very different. Which okay. was played by Mark Leonard in the TV series. Oh, oh, oh that's cool. And I was fourteen hundred years and and three thousand miles away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's not worry about that part. But anyways, wouldn't the, I thought it would be cool to have uh, you know Mark Leonard's character from Planet of the Apes contribute oh, to oh, 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 oh. Star Trek right and have and have um, you know Spock say you look familiar. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you look like a Romulan guy on one side of the fight. <sighs> anyways, but but okay, so I, I was really confused as to who uh, the gorilla was. But you're saying he's not from the movie or the TV show. I don't, I don't recognize so. the name. Yeah. Okay. And I you just kept I've... mentioning by name earlier when you were doing the covers and stuff. So I thought, well, maybe he was supposed to, he was a named character from the old show. Yeah, I've read some of the I Boom know. stuff. Uh, not not a lot, but I thought I recognized the name from that. Again, not sure. So is the Boom stuff based in between 
Oh, they have. I think they have different. They have different series set at different times and different. You know, it's all the comic books are all over the place. I think. Oh, kind of like the Star Trek stuff. Yeah. Is it uh, miniseries or are they ongoing? Both. Uh, okay. I think they have both. Oh, they're cranking them out. Cool. Cool. Good for them. All right, that was the last one I had. Okay, I, I did have one thing. I just wanted to quickly mention a few of the points of the Dana Gould essay. So oh, this. Yeah. This one was titled Opposites Attract, and the main crux of it was it tried to do a compare and contrast with, uh, between Star Trek and Planet of the Apes. And this is the one where they talk about how eternally uh, optimistic Star Trek was at its core and how ultimately not optimistic uh, most of the Planet of the Apes films were. And they didn't go all the way to the end, you know, talking about apes and and the kids all sitting and learning together. Uh, his main points were the first three films, uh, Planet of the Apes films. And it's like, man, he has uh, some good points. It's right. like at the send- end of the second movie, uh, the nuclear bomb goes off and everybody you know is, is destroyed. Uh, but, then, but in the third movie, uh, how can we make it more negative? Let's kill a baby. And <laughs> it's like, Wow. <laughs> he's right. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, you know, there, there's a baby gorilla that gets shot, uh, along with a bunch of, of apes. Um, so it was like, man, I guess I never thought about how really negative, uh, Planet of the Apes was at least most of the movies, but it was yeah, it's pessimistic. Yeah. And, uh, Paula Abdul really coined the phrase opposites attract. I don't think so. <laughs> I think she used that in her in her. I think he was uh, being funny. Yeah, <laughs> and he was funny. Yeah. Anyway. Well, thank That's you for bringing us back. That. That's good. I just wanted to mention that. Number three. All right. So issue number three. This came out February of 2015. Uh, the writing staff's all the same. Uh, Planet of the Apes, Star Trek: The Primate Directive, number three. There are three covers that I found. The first one is by Rachel Stott. It shows Kirk and Taylor battle it out over the captain's chair there on an empty Enterprise bridge. Uh, Cover R.I. is a gold key inspired uh, cover with the old gold key logo, which I love. Uh, This just shows a photo of McCoy, and then that that photo is kind of inset in side of a larger picture of a close-up of a gorilla's face. Uh, one little note about Gold Key. Gold Key did produce Star Trek and Planet of the Apes comics, so this was really fantastic uh, homage. And then the subscription cover is uh, art by Kevin Wada, and this is an artistic depiction of the profiles of the major cast from both franchises. So the story starts with Dr. Zayas contemplating the events with the talking human and his disappearance in the Forbidden Zone that we all saw in Planet of the Apes, the movie. And the real story starts with Taylor, with the communicator that he stole from Chekhov last issue, requesting a beam-up. The rest of the crew find and revive Chekhov. Suspecting the worst, Kirk, Spock, and Chekhov return to the ship to try to find Taylor. Meanwhile on the ship, Taylor has attacked the transporter chief and is made off with his clothes. Taylor, trying to blend in, even has a chance to flirt with a young woman in the turbo lift. Kirk and Spock are able to track Taylor down into the shuttle bay. 
Taylor has made his way inside one of the shuttles, but cannot figure out a way to operate it. Kirk goes in alone to confront the man. Kirk tries to explain the Prime Directive again and how important it is, even to an alternate universe. Taylor will have none of it, and the two start an epic fight. Neither combatant is able to truly best the other. In a draw, Kirk asks Taylor what he would do with the shuttlecraft if he could use it. Would he just strafe the ape village, murdering everyone? He says that he will try to find Taylor a better way, a better home. Taylor tells Kirk that the only reason he went into space was to try to find something better than man. Kirk asks why he stopped looking. With that, the two shake hands and agree to work together. Spock returns and the three start to work out what the Klingon angle is in all of this. Meanwhile, Kor has supplied the gorilla Marius with the Klingon uniform and disruptor. With their newfound power, Marius is going to overthrow the ape government and have Zaius and the rest of the leaders kneel before him. To be continued. Wow. Kor gives Marius a disruptor. That's pretty, that's pretty interesting. And a uniform. Let's not forget the uniform part. <laughs> so he's got a, a wharf sash. Great. And, uh, and shoulder things. And gauntlets. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's really it for the uh, armor, right? Yeah, but w- why did he do that? That, that? that to me doesn't make sense. I mean, are they really trying to just incorporate them into the Klingon Empire and this was his way to subtly do it? Maybe, but I think it was like the final bribe that finally is pushing uh, Marius forward to actually take over. Especially when he's given a disruptor. Although, I don't think he knows what the disruptor can do yet. But well, he saw Kirk use one, right? A phaser. Well, right. no, he didn't see it. Well, he heard you know, about he, it. It was described to him, right? No. Well, the stakes are high. No, I, I think that the sash is, is a form of dominance. Here's your gun... And remember, I'm in charge. So, uh, you know, it's a subtle sort of way of saying I'm making you commander with my my marks, my uniform. You're cool. a Klingon now, you know? Right. Right. But, I mean, but we still haven't even found out why the Klingons are even getting involved in all of this. I mean, what, what do they want out of the ape city? That, that was oh. my point of why well, it felt a little forced. No, it's, it's expansion. It's constant Klingon expansion. But I mean, why would they even need the the apes to? I mean, why need all? Why does he need to feed him weapons? Just take over it all together. And well, that's a good point. They certainly doesn't seem to be a huge population to have to subjugate. Hmm. Well, that's a good point. But obviously, they're doing a very Klingony thing here. I mean, this is their modus operandi. But that's a good point. I mean, do they really even have to because it really doesn't seem like much of a society and certainly not technologically advanced? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. It, it, that, that, for me, the whole Klingon piece, the whole, that whole part of the subplot felt forced. And that's yeah. kind of a good example of how it, it's just like, huh? <laughs> right. Good point, good point. So I like uh, the old working the old Moses Mojo in the turbo lift. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was pretty good. Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what was what was that? <laughs> I I think they just like to slip little things like that. I mean, look at uh, McCoy and uh, and what's her name? The Nova. Nova. There you go. Yeah, what what is going on there? It's just this furtive look between the two of them. It, is that the only place it comes up? Because yeah, I think so. It's like that's the only time they're even together. Oh my gosh, it's pretty. Yeah, you know, it's hard to miss. It's, I don't know if it was in the script or if the artist just thought, well, that would be fun. <laughs> well, did you ever like the Love Boat? No. <laughs> well, somebody likes a love boat somewhere, obviously. So they're throwing a little romance in here. Who knows? There you go. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe McCoy was just checking her out, and she just caught him because she's not wearing a lot of clothes. No, and she's pretty hot. Yeah, that's hard to deny. So I, I love the part where there's the fight between Kirk and Taylor, and due to what Kirk asked him to do, Spock is just hanging back, looking. He's just watching. Love it. Hmm. Yeah, they, 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 there, one there little panel. To, there wasn't a lot to synopsize there, but no. it is an epic fight that goes on for like four pages. Right, right. It definitely had the the original series, you know, wide punch feel to it. You know, <laughs> right. And then the fact that Spock is just they they randomly show a panel of Spock just dispassionately looking on. I thought that was very funny. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> right, disapprovingly looking on. Uh, right. Now, mm. d- does Taylor fight a lot in the in the movie? Is there a big fight scene? I kind of remember there was, but I might be. Ah, uh, there's he, when he tries to escape, and they're all chasing him. Yeah. That right. Scene. Yeah, he he shoots, but I don't remember him. He he didn't do fisticuffs with a gorilla or anything that I recall. Yeah, that that happened with with uh, Brent in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. There's a whole scene where he's escaping, and they have a big seen on top of the the cage you know uh that's being pulled by horses and there's a big fist fight there but that that's the only one i remember yeah Mm. and of course there was a fight every week on the tv show that's true that's true maybe that's what i'm thinking of but this just felt very star trekky like you know here's the obligatory fight oh (laughs) right and the fact that kirk got two drop kicks in on him in in the four pages we see Two of the the famous Kirk kicks. Right, right, yeah. right, right. And then another famous thing is the obligatory torn Kirk tunic. Uh huh. So that oh, I hadn't even thought there. about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so why do they make those uniforms out of tissue paper? I don't know. Yeah. And it's always Kirk's. Always. Anyway. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I don't know. If, I don't think that the uh, the transporter chief. Uh, Outfit really worked for Taylor. I'm just saying. Really? Because I, I want one of those outfits now. Because I, that looks really comfortable. I mean, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. it looks like kind of like a karate kind of outfit, sort of. It does. It looks it really does comfortable. Little gi. Yeah. Anyway. Mm. Well, I thought his mustache was a little bit over, overboard. I mean, Kyle never had a mustache like that in the TV in Taz. Right, not in Taz. He was also never incredibly built the way yeah, this guy is. He's pretty beefy. Yeah. His name is Kyle. Oh yeah. Yeah. He shows up in he, he's in a quite a few of the episodes as the trans as a transporter technician and he shows up again in Star Trek two on uh as part of the bridge crew of the Reliant. Oh that's cool. Oh, that's a good point. Hmm, I don't remember mm-hmm. that. Oh, very oh good. yeah. Huh. Anyway, in but this, he doesn't look like him? this guy. 
Well, that's him, but it, he does. He grew the mustache. Yeah, he had the mustache in the um, in in Star Trek too. Oh, did okay. Well, cool. Now that's that's nice detail. He yeah. had a handlebar mustache like this. No, I don't think it was a big handlebar. He does it definitely looks a little over the top here, like he's okay. ready for a barbershop quartet. Right. But um. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cool. Oh man. Oh, the things you can learn. There you go. All the all the layers of detail. So it was cool that Taylor tried to take Galileo 7. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's yeah. the best shuttle ever on the Enterprise, so good choice. Interesting point, actually. I didn't think of it until you just said that. When you say the Galileo 7, that was, of course, the seven members that were on it in the episode. And the, epi- the name of that shuttle was the Galileo. After that episode, all of the shuttles became the Galileo 2 because, obviously, the first one burned up in the atmosphere. This... Oh, good this idea. shuttlecraft good is point. just called the Galileo, so that would put it before the Galileo 7 episode, which is very early. Yeah, and this has the registration of NCC-17017. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's hmm. That's part of the reason I called it the Galileo 7. But I didn't realize that, it was, that the series was named after the, the people that were on the ship that was marooned. I thought it was the name of the... Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I always assumed the Galileo 7, that there were seven people on it, and maybe there even aren't. I just, it, as a kid, I just got that in my head, and maybe so I'm like, completely wrong. So like Blake 7. Yeah. The main thing is, they had the Galileo on there, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't know that all the shuttles were called Galileo on the Enterprise. I thought oh, it was just not. that one. Oh, He I... just said it was called Galileo 2. There was oh, no, another but one. I thought that was the replace. I thought... Brian's point was that was the replacement for uh, the ruined okay. original Galileo shuttlecraft. Right. Gotcha. <laughs> anyway, so um, yeah, the Galileo. I thought I thought the the seven was always it was like the seventh shuttle on the Enterprise, but I don't know. But that's what I thought too. Hmm. So, could I mention just a few points about uh, Dana Gould's essay on this one? Uh, yeah, because I really like this one. Yeah, me too. So, uh, a good five cent time machine is the title of it, and they got a great Lindsay Lohan joke in there. I thought that was great. Uh, what he was—I don't want to try to say it, but a great Lindsay Lohan joke. If you have the issue, definitely don't skip that. Um, and stopping John Willick, going back in time and stopping John Wilkes Booth from an assassinating Lincoln in a Gorn suit, I thought that was great. That, <laughs> now, that is geek humor. Love it. Uh, and how that would really spice up the history books. Love that. Uh, okay, so the main point is things like bubblegum cards from a Planet of the Apes uh, card pack taking you back in time in your mind to a time and place that you associate with the object, I thought that was so true. Um, and I'm sure we all have things like that. I've got, a, uh, I've got a little metal Gorn ship that I picked up at my first Star Trek comic book convention. And I had not found that for, for decades. And I opened up an old box, and there was a whole bunch of old stuff I had in there. And the Gorn ship was in there, and I picked that up, and I said, I was totally transported back to that uh, that first convention I went to. Mm. Probably, you know, when I was like thirteen or fourteen. <laughs> so that was great. 
Um, just I just did look it up, and there's no answer to this because I looked at the picture from the episode Galileo 7, and indeed it's NCC 1701-7, but there are seven crew members in that episode on the ship. So I don't know. So is that like a double meaning thing, double double entendre? Oh. Maybe. Anyway, it never occurred to me that Galileo 7 was, was referring to the name of the, the, the craft. I always thought it was like, you know, like the Jackson 5. Or, <laughs> <you know>. <laughs> <laughs> well, it means both, obviously. I guess so. Apparently. Cool. Guess so. Jackson 5. Like it. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, uh, the essay I thought was great. Um, I, I, I really like that he says that he owns the house that Roddy McDowell yeah, owns. yeah, that was great. I mean, he has the. I think he even mentions that he owns the, the largest piece of Player of the Apes memorabilia. Right. That's hilarious. Hmm. And he says he doesn't collect a lot of memorabilia. I call BS on that. <laughs> I bet he's got a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> More than just bubblegum packs of Planet of the Apes card, collectible cards. But I got to tell you, when he was telling that whole story, when I was reading that about the, the sort of looking for the the Holy Grail and finding it and all that, I mean, I really could relate to all that sort yeah. of the collectibles time back in the day before Next Gen. When once Next Gen started, and it didn't even occur to me until years later, but they really just started cranking out stuff, you know, because they knew that people like me were out there to buy it. Um, but before that, I got into the collecting stuff after you know the '60s and the '70s had come out so it was all uh existing product that was out there that you had to find and it wasn't that much of it so that was a different kind of era than once the collecting thing kind of you started to become just minions for product placement people in madison avenue somewhere um and i don't know i I got that feel when he was talking about those cards um and trying to find them right and that and before ebay before all these other things I mean, where do you find stuff like that? It, it wasn't Absolutely. easy. Well, for example, Gold Key. Um, I didn't start collecting the comic books until, um, well, really the end of the Marvel, but, but, but really the beginning of the first DC run. So I wanted to go back and find all the old Gold Key. Well, this was pre-internet, and it was really cool. I would carry a little um, uh, list in my wallet of the ones that I still needed to get. And whenever I would visit a new city somewhere where I was traveling – I would have to go to the Yellow Pages, find the comic book store, figure out with a map how to get there. And, <laughs> and when you'd get to the comic book store, you'd look through and it was like if, you, if they had one of the, the comic books that you needed, it was like a treasure hunt and it was, it was cool. But you also got to know the city because you were, you know, it, it was a thing to kind of um, anchor your little visit on. I don't know. I just, and then when eBay started, it's definitely a very cool thing. But, you know, you can go on now and within a week or two find pretty much every – gold key comic that you want and the other thing is the prices are of course much lower because supply and demand they're all the, the buyers and the sellers are brought together from all over the world so it's, it's definitely a change but there's a part of me that misses those days of the treasure hunt huh. cool all right so uh i guess we should close up yeah so three we'll issues the three issues have set things up very well we know all the characters, we know the situations, and uh, we'll find out how this all plays out next week. So, Brian, you want to give us any, any type of teaser? Are we way off in some of our speculations, or, or, or are we close? I'm not, I'm not going there, man. <laughs> <laughs> no way. 
You no know? teasers, no nothing? Oh, nothing except, well, I, it, Donovan, you know, when we were talking, I think before we started to record today, mentioned that he might want to see Beneath the Planet of the Apes in order to sort of find the time frame in which they're talking about when they're going to conclude. And I would recommend that. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so uh, for everybody listening, you don't know how hard it was not to read these uh, these issues as they were coming out, and uh, you know not to just finish off the series while we were doing these three issues. But I really wanted to, uh, you know, wait and and not say anything that would that would spoil the issue four and five. And I thought it was so hard I couldn't do it. Well, plus you didn't know you were going to be on the show. <laughs> plus, you, you made it very clear at the very beginning you were waiting on the, waiting for these with, on bated breath. I mean, it's true. I mean, you were going to read you were going to read them immediately. I I go into a little Portland, Maine, to my little Casablanca Comics uh, Casablanca Comics comic store, and then I go to a little uh, coffee shop and I I read them all as they came out. It was oh, fun. that's awesome. Cool. You didn't and, get any coffee on them, did you? Uh uh-uh, uh, I'm good. <laughs> They're all safely back in the plastic sleeves. They are. They are. All's all is all is well. Now, do you buy yourself a reading copy, and then you buy the uh, all the? No, because I'm buying so many darn copies of it already. I'm just very very careful. I know how to read a comic without, <laughs> you know. You know, with the with the plastic gloves. I do stop short of the gloves. Oh, um, okay. Unless it's like a gold key comic and it's in really good shape, then I actually would put on gloves. But uh, I now I just read the CD for those. You know, yeah, you don't really have to open them. Yeah, I've, I've got these. I've got the electronic versions that I'm reading. I'm not. I didn't even open my uh, hard copies. Really? No, it didn't even occur to me to get the electronic copies of. The, and you just get them right off of the website and yeah. have a reader, and that's it. Com- Comicsology, sure. yeah, yeah. It's just convenient, more convenient for me as I'm traveling. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, and I hate to say it, but when I'm reading them at work, like during lunch or during a break, uh, <laughs> I, I get far less stares. Yeah, when I'm reading them on a on a tablet versus uh, pulling the whole book out. Right, with another tab, real by in case the boss comes by, then you just click it. And bing, I'm working. <laughs> Never done that. Never done that. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Well, then let's uh, wrap up, and we'll be back next week and finish this off. Plus, I guess we'll probably have some. Uh, talk about how how it ended and how it fits into the the rest of the franchise's history there you go perfect looking forward to it all right thank you boys it was fun our pleasure thanks for coming back all right see you next week all right on the review later thank you for listening to star trek comic book review All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic.com. Second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.